Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. As the holiday season swings into full gear, many of us are feeling the added pressure, especially with the financial constraints this year. The 2023 holiday retail outlook suggests Canadians are planning to spend less, but that doesn't mean our holidays will lack joy. In fact, it's a chance to focus on what truly matters and find new ways to connect and create lasting memories. I'm curious about how you're adapting your holiday plans, so join the conversation on the What She Said Talk Facebook page after today's show. But first, let's dive into today's free and fabulous edition of What She Said. Here's what's coming up. We begin with a critical issue that touches every family, keeping our kids safe online. In the wake of a young boy's tragic loss to sextortion and the constant threats of bullying and harmful content, it's time to ask, are we doing enough? Technology expert Amber Mack joins me to discuss the challenges and potential solutions for protecting our children in the digital world. Continuing with the theme of technology's darker side, Anne Brody reviews the chilling documentary Total Trust from China, a real-life tale reminiscent of Black Mirror. Plus, she'll bring her regular roundup of new entertainment to lighten the mood. Raising boys, particularly through their teenage years, can be a complex task, especially for feminist mothers. Allie Payne, an expert in parent-teen dynamics, is here to guide us on how to nurture our sons into respectful, empathetic, and socially aware individuals. The holiday season can be a mix of joy and stress, making it crucial to focus on our mental health. Dr. Christine Palme, representing care to know offers insights on maintaining mental well-being during these busy times and as we approach the new year. Finally, we meet Mary Sanders, an Olympic gymnast turned Cirque du Soleil acrobat and now in the entertainment world. Mary's memoir details her journey from the 2004 Olympics to collaborating with Shark Tank's Robert Herjavec. We'll explore her story of determination, sacrifice, and reinvention. So whether you're looking for insights into digital safety, entertainment, parenting, mental health, or inspirational stories, What She Said has something for everyone today, right here on 105.9 The Region. In today's first interview, we're tackling a critical and deeply concerning issue that affects families everywhere, keeping our kids safe online. In a world where the internet is a double-edged sword, offering vast knowledge and connectivity on one hand and exposing our children to unprecedented risks on the other, it's clear that more needs to be done to protect them. From the heart-wrenching tragedy of a young boy's life lost to sextortion, to the relentless bullying and exposure to harmful content, the question looms large, are we doing enough? Joining me is Amber Mack, a renowned technology expert, author, and a concerned mother herself. Amber brings a wealth of knowledge in digital innovation and understanding of the online landscape. She's here to help us unpack the complexities of this issue and explore what government policymakers and social media platforms can do to safeguard our children. Amber, thank you so much for joining me today for this crucial discussion. Thanks so much for having me. So based on your ex really extensive experience in the tech world, what specific actions do you believe the Canadian government needs to take to protect children online? 
Well, I think one of the first things that the Canadian government uh, should do is uh, recognize that um, this is a threat to the health of our children. I, I think even just vocalizing that to parents would be something that um, many parents and guardians would really appreciate hearing because certainly uh, many of us have struggled at home in terms of the experiences that our kids have online. So I think acknowledging the problem is kind of number one. Um, I would even go as far as to say that um, when it comes to public safety, of course, which the federal government is responsible for, this is a, a threat to public safety in many ways. We have a generation growing up on technology that um, unfortunately is leading them down some pretty dark um, paths. So recognizing it's a problem. Secondly, um, putting in uh, guardrails to ensure that these experiences are safer online. Um, we, we have uh, regulation in all types of industries. Uh, food is a great example. You know, there are certain things that uh, we have warning labels on if they are unhealthy for us. We really need to think about this kind of nutritional breakdown for the social media platforms that our kids are using on uh, a frequent basis. But the online threats are continually evolving. I mean, you know, even in a year, how far AI has come, deep fake technology. What are the long-term strategies the government should adopt to keep up with the changes? Because we're, well, we're barely keeping up now. Well, I think that uh, that's a great question. And, and quite clearly, this is something that governments all around the world really struggle with. You know, we don't really look to government to do things quickly. And yet we are in a, a time where technology is moving forward so quickly that it's difficult for anyone to keep up, let alone uh, governments that uh, tend to be a little slower. And so I, I think what we have here really is a perfect storm. We have a situation where government isn't able to keep up with how quickly the technology is moving forward and the risks that exist uh, month to month. I know, for example, we've chatted in the past about deep fake technology. Well, even since we chatted a few months ago, I recognize that um, deep fakes are um, affecting our kids in, in new and unique ways that I would never have imagined. You know, there's an example of an app called the Undress uh, app that basically allows anyone to take a picture of someone, upload it, and then see them naked. You can only imagine how many lives this can and is potentially ruining in terms of shaming people online. I'm sorry, I'm speechless on that last one. That's incredible. And so this is an app you can just download. Absolutely. It's just an app that you can download. There's also lots of other tech software like this. So it's so accessible when we talk about some of this AI tech that um, allows people to create content. I mean, it's generative AI, right? Create any type of content you want. Those could be images, those could, could be videos. And now it's in the hands of everyone, including the next generation. And so we have a situation right now where when we talk about online bullying, it's not just about calling someone a name. It's about taking a person's likeness and um, distributing something like non-consensual porn on the internet, um, undressing them in images and, and putting it online to shame them. And all of this is, is pretty inexpensive to do and in some cases free. And so we really have to understand that the threats are evolving much more quickly than the government is able to keep up. But at the same time, I would say that this should be a priority, right? We prioritize many things um, uh, at all levels of government. And I think it's fair to say if we don't get this right, 
we have an entire generation that's growing up right now that um, is hugely at risk for mental health issues that often can directly tie back into the experiences that they have on the internet. So while the government is moving slow, it's clear the tech companies are moving really fast. So let's talk about the responsibility they have in this conversation and how we can get them to start taking some accountability. Well, I think one of the problems that we also have with many of these tech platforms is that it hasn't really been until the past few years that many people have recognized that some of the things that they do are intentional and they're aware of some of the issues and problems that they've created. So what we're seeing now, for example, um, in the U.S. uh, in particular, is that many states are going after Meta, which of course is the parent company of Instagram and Facebook, and recognizing that Meta knew, in fact, that um, it had engaged younger users. There were there were studies done where they knew that there were 11 and 12 year olds on the platform. Instead of ensuring that those accounts were um, deleted um, or removed, um, they they them up and running. So it's a it's an example of how even though these tech companies often have policies in place in terms of usage, they don't always play by the rules that they've put in for the first place. So this to me is a, a situation where I don't think many of the tech platforms really have the best interests of the next generation in mind. And we've started to see these stories over the past few years that are just so devastating. Like algorithms that are serving young people uh, who are looking for self-harm content, they're serving up more of it. You know, they're trying to get a handle handle on what they've created, but they certainly aren't very effective at doing so. Do these companies have uh, ethical policies in place and, and who establishes those or monitors them even? Well, I, I think, you know, most of us have heard the stories of some of the tech platforms that that do have organized groups in place to really adhere to the safety of people on their platform. But we, we also, also hear about is how often those groups are dismantled, right, or, or no longer funded. We certainly have seen that over the past year with um, X, of course, formerly known as Twitter, where they disbanded um, their safety group that was in charge of ensuring that um, uh, people had a safe experience online. So these stories, unfortunately, are are very uh, common in the, the tech platform space. And so I would say that it is a question of not just a void in good leadership among the big uh, tech players in the social media space, but also they've been allowed for many, many years to operate like it's the Wild West. There, there are no other examples of businesses out there that are able to have sort of free reign on their consumers the way that the social media tech giants have, right? I can't think of another scenario. Every other business has to adhere to rules and regulations that are in place. But we've sort of given the big tech companies in the social space a free pass with devastating consequences. And I think I think Twitter and X, or X is, is sort of this perfect example now because it's it's being led by one person essentially who is having massive impact uh, on the internet. And I don't know if we can put that genie back in the bottle. Well, I I think you're absolutely right in the sense that um, we have too few people who are kind of making the decisions at the top who, again, don't have the best interest uh, of their users necessarily in mind, especially that next generation or that younger generation of users. But um, 
I don't think that this is all that uncommon in the business world. I mean, we've certainly seen leaders over the years who maybe don't have the best intentions um, of their consumers in mind, but because they've always had to adhere to rules and regulations that I've put in place, they've had to kind of succumb and, and you know, play by the rules. When you have no guardrails or no rules uh, among those big tech players in the social media space, we're starting to really see what happens. And that means that um, listen, there's no transparency in terms of how algorithms even work as one example and how they take our kids down paths that those kids shouldn't be going down in the first place. There are no warning labels uh, on social media. You know, if you think about cigarettes in Canada, um, we know that there are warning labels on cigarette packages and we know even next year they're starting to print warning labels on individual cigarettes. Could we have warning labels on social media? Probably. And and maybe why not, right? It, it is dangerous to your health and it affects more people than um, the number of people who are currently smoking cigarettes. So I think we've just had a, a lack of leadership um, in government to actually address this issue. And then simultaneously, we've had uh, a number of um, tech founders who have taken advantage of the fact that they don't have rules and regulations that they need to follow. Okay, we're talking about kids, keeping kids safe online with Amber Mack. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Amber. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. She's fair and she is quiet, Lord. She doesn't look like me. She made me love the morning. She's a holiday at sea. Okay, we're back with Amber Mack. We're discussing keeping kids safe online. Uh, let's turn our focus now to really the front line, and that, uh, that is parents. And I think some parents may not even be aware of how badly they are needed at that front line. So you are a parent, obviously, but an expert in this field. What are the most critical steps parents should take to ensure their kids' safety online? One of the most important things that parents can do is really to get educated about many of the ongoing threats that exist uh, in the social media space. There's a, a really great website called Common Sense Media that I've referred to for a number of years. It's an amazing resource for parents to understand uh, all of the different apps, the different threats that exist, how many of these social media sites work. So that's kind of a great go-to destination. You may want to check in once or twice a week based on uh, how much your child is using social media. The second thing is to actually use some of the apps that your kids are using because you will very quickly start to understand the environment that they are in. You know, for example, if you think about a child signing up for social media, you know, someone who's a, a, a teenager, for example, you'll know how quickly they're able to interact and meet strangers and then direct message with strangers. You won't really understand that experience until you start using those platforms. So I would recommend downloading the apps that your kids are using, starting to try to understand what they're using. And then that ongoing dialogue in terms of some of the threats that exist out there. And, you know, I'm sorry to say that it's come down to this, that it has to be the parent's job in isolation. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish we had regulations that properly protected our kids. But unfortunately, at this point, I would say that the parents have to do a lot of that heavy lifting in terms of keeping their kids safe and being aware that, yes, sextortion is on the rise. You know, that is, of course, uh, an issue where all of a sudden someone will coerce you into sharing images or videos of yourself naked. 
and then they'll blackmail you and say, hey, I'm going to post these if you don't pay me money. That's an example of sextortion. A lot of parents might think that this happens mostly to young girls, but what we've seen from much of the recent data is that there's a sharp increase in the number of young boys who are victims of this, including a young boy who you mentioned who took his own life in British Columbia. So being aware of the threats that exist and the magnitude of these threats and having conversations with their kids to explain, okay, hey, I read about this. This is happening. This is what you should do if this happens to you. Not all kids are going to listen perfectly well, but I do think that's the first line of defense. And you bring up such a good point about ongoing dialogue. I think, you know, and we're all guilty of it. We think we've had the conversation. We've hammered the point home. Why, you know, why beat it to death? But it's because of how quickly it's changing that you do need to constantly just be checking in. Yes. And I think, you know, quite frankly, if we look at, at, at kids, you know, especially tweens and teens, I mean, they're very trusting of uh, everything in many ways, right? So they use social media. They see their parents using social media. They maybe don't have the same kind of concerns that they should about interacting with strangers or their experiences they're having online. So having those conversations really is that first line of defense. Uh, you know, years ago, I wrote a book called Outsmarting Your Kids Online. And one of the things that I recognize in doing some of the research is that the parents who had kids who really got into uh, terrible situations online tended to be the parents that were the least tech savvy. There was always kind of a correlation there. They didn't really understand the risk to the fullest extent, uh, extent and didn't understand exactly what their kids were doing. And that creates, unfortunately, uh, an opportunity for many of these dangers to arise. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think another area that we need to be talking about is the role of schools and educational institutions um, in educating our kids and keeping them safe. Uh, you know, do you know of, of any institution or school that is doing this actively? Well, I've certainly had a chance to speak at some schools, uh, K to 12, for example, about online dangers, not to the extent that I would imagine that this would be on their radar, but I have done some speaking on that front. But one thing I will say is like, this is not a, you know, um, a once a year kind of uh, keynote that you do at your school. It's moving too quickly. I've always thought because I've, my son has gone to schools that typically have uh email newsletters every single week, for example, that there should be some dedicated part of the newsletter that just talks about online threats. Hey, this is in the news. This is what you should look out for. I think it can be an educator's job in many ways to help with that process of both educating kids, but also parents as well. And there are certainly many avenues um, uh, to be able to explore the dangers of technology and educate people throughout that process. We only have about a minute left here. Is there something that, you know, if you had the policymakers sitting in front of you right now, is there something you would say to them about, you know, so that the urgency of this hits home? One of the things that I would say to policymakers in terms of the urgency of these issues is to take a really long-term view on uh, the situation right now and many of these online dangers and how they are affecting really what is the entire next generation of Canadians. Once we start to put that in perspective and can take that statement very seriously and then wrap it in the threats that exist because of artificial intelligence, I think that it would be possible to paint a more accurate picture of many of the risks that exist in this space and understand the urgency of being able to do something right now. Amber, I can't thank you enough for joining me. This is a conversation that we need to continue having. So uh, I will have you back. Uh, I know parents hang on every word you share because you are an expert in this field. So thank you for joining me today. 
Where can people keep up with you, though? Because you are constantly keeping people abreast of new situations and technologies. Yeah, thanks so much. So um, I do send out an email newsletter every Tuesday. It's completely free. You can get it at ambermac.com slash newsletter. And I try to address many of the online dangers as well as opportunities that do exist with some emerging technology out there. All right. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much. You are not an accident where no one thought it through. The world that stood against us made us mean to fight for you. And when we chose your name, we knew. Think of all the fellas that I haven't kissed. Next year, I could be oh so good. If you check off my Christmas list. It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies, and Anne Brody is in with a very disturbing documentary to kick things off. Anne, I can't stop thinking about this one. It is an absolute necessity for people to see this. It's in theaters, and later on it'll be out on TVOD, but it is shocking. And it concerns me because we have family members who are Chinese, and, you know, she goes back to see her parents, and it really worries me. So Total Trust is about, it details the last 20 years of intense surveillance surveillance of Chinese citizens by the government. Uh, Citizens have scorecards that they can show in order to get around that tells whether they've been good citizens or not. And what they can't do is they can't petition the government for anything. They can't incite subversion, you know, by being a Me Too supporter. Um, and they call, they follow four people. And this troop of government agents actually sits outside the door of one of these com- uh, people, stays there for weeks and weeks, installs surveillance inside when they're not around. And this is just normal. And then they have volunteer nighttime patrol people who go around and they make notes of everything like so-and-so put their garbage out at night. It's just mind bending. And there's this one poor woman. She travels 2000 miles to the prison where her lawyer husband is. And she's shouting at the prison. Are you dead or alive? She has no clue. Um, anyway, so why does the government do this? Well, the communist aim is to create a safe environment and fulfillment of happiness. Oh, that sounds like the complete opposite of what's happening in this documentary. I mean, it's, it is so disturbing. I, I, it's just, I, I'm not going to stop thinking about this for a long time because I think also potentially because of how much data we have in our society floating around out there, we could be looking at the same thing. This was a Black Mirror episode to me. It was yes, just insane just, watching yeah. this trailer. Of yeah. course, TikTok. You got to watch out for TikTok. So. Well, who needs fiction when we have reality? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about Archie. Okay. Archie is, uh, Diane Cannon was uh, one of Cary Grant's many wives and they had his only child, Jennifer. Well, Diane Cannon and Jennifer Grant are producing this series on BritBox called Archie, and it's about their lives together. Um, and it was or, uh, together, but also it explores Cary Grant's grindingly po- poor upbringing as Archibald Leach. Um, he was abused, neglected. His father tried to sell him. Um, he grew up in, in Bristol and this is where all this happened. And he, he was told by his father that his mother had died 
And he found out 50 years later that his mother was alive and well. He found her and cared for her the rest of her life. Now, Diane Cannon's relationship is shown in here. And she, she, I don't, you know, she posts herself as the only woman who really stood up to Cary Grant uh, because he was such a sex symbol and important, powerful figure in Hollywood. Um, and you admire the heck out of her. So I have interviews with Diane, with Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant uh, freakishly well um, on the site. So it's it's interesting because it's also a glimpse into old Hollywood and the the uh, complete uh, artificial world that the big stars lived in and the the pressures that they felt to be big stars always and how Jenna, how Diane tried to change him in a way. But it's fascinating stuff and it's particularly his relationship with his mother renewed after all those years. It's just heartwarming. All right. Tell me about Three Musketeers then. We got, we got a minute or so okay. left here. Let me start with the fact that it's violent, but it's from, it's set in 1627, Alexander Dumas, um, uh, based on his novel. And it's part one of two. It's about the formation of the Three Musketeers with their partner, who is uh, blackmailed by the King of France. France is under threat from England, all kinds of things going on. But what I find so interesting about this is that there, there, there's an extended battle scene in the woods. And it's a handheld camera, one handheld camera, following the horses, the swords, the gunshots. He's right in the center of the action. The horses are walking around the camera person or trotting around. and all this going on to me that was just worth every second so you know it's it's an interesting watch and it is in theaters and tvod all right uh we were just talking about christmas movies uh before we started recording today and you mentioned one of your favorites yes christmas in connecticut with barbara stanwick now she plays a a martha stewart like figure she writes a column for a big magazine well, she can't cook or keep a house or anything, but her editor makes her take in a war hero and and himself to treat them over Christmas, to cook for them and carry on. So there's all kinds of machinations going on. It's hysterically funny, even though it's Barbara Stanwyck. And there's some great character actors and it's just so cozy. I mean, they go around this farm that she allegedly owns uh, in a carriage with horses. And it's just, Christmassy is all get out. I I just love it. It's part. You know what? I've never I've never seen it, so I will add it to my list Good. for this year. Yeah. And I'll just quickly tell you what I watched that I I had ne- I haven't watched yet was Noel with Anna Kendrick, and it's been out for a couple of years. I just never really was drawn to it. I watched it the other day. I loved it. It was just a fun. It was a fun take on a woman taking over the Santa Claus role. And I just thought it was adorable. So, you know, perfect for what she said. Yeah. If you've not seen it, I highly recommend that one. It's a really cute movie. And you're going to be back next week with more. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next week. A ring. I don't mean on the phone. Santa baby. And hurry down the chimney tonight. Hurry down the chimney tonight. 
More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. As mothers, especially for those of us who identify as feminists, it's crucial to be mindful of the societal norms and patriarchal traps that can inadvertently influence how we raise our boys. The challenge becomes even more pronounced during their teen years. Allie Payne, with her deep expertise in the parent-teen dynamic, is here to help guide us through this complex terrain. In this next interview, we'll explore how to raise our sons to be respectful, empathetic, and aware individuals, breaking free from outdated stereotypes. Ali, welcome back. Such a great topic today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm pretty fired up about this one. (laughs) Yeah, so can you explain then why this happens? Why mothers in particular fall into these old traps and how to become more aware of these tendencies? Well, first of all, it's, it's, generational. It's like hundreds of years. I mean, patriarchy is not new. Um, That kind of programming has been around for a long time. So it makes sense that we repeat not only what we saw and learned all of these, um, um, the subtle dynamics and nuances in our own family, but our, then our grandparents and so on and so on. So um, I think the, the disconnect becomes when we get really frustrated and upset at the disconnected dad, whether that's a co-parent or still your partner or whatever, but then we don't draw the connection between, but you're raising a son. Yeah. So we, we get angry on one, one side and then prop it up on the other. Yeah. So what are some of the common patriarchal traps then that even feminist moms might fall into when raising their teenage? Right. And so I just want to be really clear. These are documented and researched what I'm sharing with you today. So the first is that there are very distinct differences in expectations within the home about what a son is required to do, say, behave, um, et cetera, as well as compared to what a daughter is um, required to do, say, behave, et cetera. So there are pink blue roles, um, if you will. And, and that's not a bad thing. You know, I'm I'm not against that. What for what for any reason? It's that that inherently does set up some of these distinct differences that create a lack of emotional intelligence for boys, in even the opportunity to play in that field and explore than it does for for young girls. Now, that's the first. Uh, uh, that's well documented. The second is um, at the two ages that are distinct where masculinity is is reinforced patriarchy masculinity is reinforced for young boys this is shocking is the age of 5 where guess what they go to school and at the age of 5 there are two key things that happen they a boys no longer have the same safety or uh, encouragement to express fear or sadness at five, they begin to learn they need to deny, abandon, and suppress fear and sadness. And the second critical age, and so again, this, this 
goes back to also being at home because now they're not a baby anymore. So they don't, you know, they're starting to be a, a little boy. So they just shouldn't be, we reinforce this at home because we learned it at school too. So the second key part for where masculinity is reinforced is at the age of 15. And that's where puberty is hot, messing all over with their bodies and their brains. And young boys are seeing um, with their own social hierarchy and their social networks, how it can be safer to be tough and arrogant and um, require. That's where they begin to learn to have power over people is feeling safe to acquire things and have power over and control, which is reinforced by dads who were raised in the same thing, not bad dads. I'm not saying that. Um, and so those are three really key things that are also reinforced at home um, with teen boys. God forbid you have a 15 year old boy who is deeply emotional and wanting to express that as opposed to uh, putting priorities on earning money and getting a job and working out and being fit and being smart and, and, you know, playing, being physical, like all of the really, it actually does happen. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we know through evidence that when men suppress their emotions and bottle things up, it has massive impacts on their, their quality of life and on their health. So you're not doing your kids any service, right? By propping up these, these very archaic ways of, of raising boys. No, but unfortunately, again, what, what we as women tend to do is we tend to um, throw dads under the bus and, and dog them and uh, they can't connect with their teens. I guess messages I get every day. I'm trying to make these changes. I'm trying to make these changes. Their dad won't support it. He's so disconnected. He doesn't know how to, okay, well, guess what? He was a young boy. Right. He, he got that way because of the system. And so I, I'm a boy mom as well. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think we can throw stones upward if we're not willing to look at what is the role that we're playing in our own home. Right. Absolutely. So what can parent, mothers, but in particular parents, this is a joint effort, yeah. do? So um, this is really key that this isn't just on moms. I understand, and based again on data, it is often moms who are creating some of this relationship shift and change in the home based on decades of research that we're moving away from the command and control method, which we know, as you said, um, creates more mental health issues. concerns because of the constant disconnection, not only disconnection from you as a parent, but they learn to disconnect from themselves. So as a, as a boy mom, these are some of the things that I didn't want for my, my, my boys. So what we did is talk about feelings all of the time, because we also know scientifically that feelings are the foundation of all behavior. So instead of just looking at the behavior for what it is, why don't we just talk about the source? Like, how about that? So we talked about feelings all of the time when they were acting out. Hmm, that this feels hard. What 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 are what are you feeling? And what do you so we acknowledged and normalized feelings, a lot of it. We acknowledged, and as they grew, we acknowledged and normalized the expression and articulation of those feelings, the being curious about feeling, the non-linearness of feelings that you can feel one way and not have a clue why you feel that way, and that's okay. And then, you know, 
some feelings want our bodies to do certain things. And that's not necessarily a great thing, but we still need to honor and acknowledge that feeling. So we talked about feelings a lot. We also talked about mental health a lot. We talked about stereotypes with their friends, especially at around 15, that all their friends were dating and they didn't really want to date and didn't feel ready to date and how that became the construct of what was normal and what was more socially acceptable is that they had a girlfriend. And I do mean a possession. They had a girlfriend at 15. Right. Um, and how they, their friends were treating their girlfriends, how they would talk about them, how, you know, we, I, I absolutely made a, an effort that um, at the table, it was how do we say one kind thing about each other, that this being an arrogant um, <clears throat> things I won't say is not cool for that. We don't need that. Um, and then also for dads, I want to say this. First of all, can we give dads a bit of a break? I'm not saying that we need to promote patriarchy and we want to keep it going. I'm saying they were raised in a construct where their brain literally feels it is wildly unsafe to leave that construct. We did that. So yeah. we need to have a little bit of empathy and compassion for the level of fear that dads go into when we're asking them to leave the linearness of one plus one, tit for tat control authority that feels safe and they have been taught makes them a better man we need to invite them we need to model for them that vulnerability and emotions actually create more connection the one that most men are drastically missing not only with their children and their family members and friends we know men don't know how to do friends the same way but they're missing with their children because they've never learned to connect to themselves. And that is the source of almost every mental health challenge. So those are some of the key steps. I, I love this conversation, Ali. I wish we could talk about it for hours and hours, uh, honestly, because I think we often leave boys out of the conversation we when we discuss feminism and we're not doing them any favors no. because we're actually causing harm. So such a great topic, Ali. Uh, I know you're going to talk about this a lot more <laughs> and you'll have a blog post up on, on what she said, but in the meantime, where can people connect with you and, and keep up on this topic and perhaps even just reach out to you for some guidance? For sure. Um, uh, on social media, TikTok and Instagram at Allie Payne, A-L-Y-P-A-I-N. And if you go to my website, AllyPayne.com under the resource section, you can download some things that will help you begin to um, write this very long generational um, unfortunate circumstance. Absolutely. Ali, thank you so much. And, and just thank you again. I love this topic. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> oh, yes, sweet darling. So glad you are a child of mine. You just wait. As we find ourselves in the midst of the holiday season, a time that can be both joyous and stressful, it's important to take a moment to reflect on our mental health. With the new year on the horizon and the winter months setting in, it's not uncommon to experience feelings of sadness or overwhelm. 
Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christine Palme, a family doctor from Midtown Toronto, who is here on behalf of care to know to help us navigate the complexities of mental health and provide us with valuable insights on how to prioritize our mental well-being during this very busy and stressful time of year. Welcome back to the show, Christine. Thanks for having me. So I honestly can already feel people because those bills are going to start rolling in soon. And uh, to, not to mention all the other stress, you know, oftentimes just even with your own family. <laughs> so what's the, can we talk about the importance of prioritizing our mental health right now? Psychological stress, you know, physical stress, social stress, it, you mentioned financial as well. I think it's uh, really important to step back and realize that those stresses can take a toll. And uh, the pressure to be joyful during a supposedly joyous season also is another stress. Uh, I certainly see a complete uh, increase in my patients with mental health disorders coming in and saying, I'm really down. I feel like I shouldn't. So there's a lot of self-shame. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, in Canada, mental health resources are so, so difficult to access and are also expensive. Self-care and self-awareness and doing what you can uh, to increase your mental health is so essential. And, you know, I think we hear it a lot, but because sometimes it is difficult to assess if somebody is depressed or if they're if they're having a hard time because we we mask it well. Uh, so what are some of the common signs and symptoms of depression? And if, for people who are observing these things and perhaps friends and family, what should we be looking for? Fatigue, that's unexplained. I mean, obviously low mood, um, emotional dysregulation and what that means, crying, happy, not understanding why your emotions are as such not wanting to do the things. So this is a big one, not wanting to do the things that you used to do. Uh, if you loved walking and just don't feel like doing it anymore, you know, you can list, the list is endless. Uh, I think some of the, um, the signs are quite subtle and it takes a bit of introspection. And you can imagine during the busy holiday season, uh, we don't have a moment to breathe. So take that time, do a mental health checklist. How am I doing today type of thing. And how do anxiety and depression uh, interact? Such a difficult question. And number one, they often occur together. I you know, have a few patients that are only depressed, a few patients that are only anxious, but usually they occur in conjunction. The question is, is are you more depressed or more anxious? Anxiety you know, is a sense of panic. Oftentimes there's more uh, agitation involved. Um, I often say my patients worry and then worry about worrying. Um, you know, what, It's sometimes difficult to differentiate, but if you have that jittery sense, that unsettled sense that probably puts you along the anxiety scale. But as I said, you know, it's a spectrum and they usually happen together. And I don't think, I mean, especially since, you know, everything went south in 2020, um, it's fair to say that a lot of us have anxiety. We're on this nonstop, uh, you know, roller coaster with news and events around the world. So you can't blame people. You know, we were put in a perpetual state of panic. And being scared of what was forthcoming because of the uncertainty. And we know that, you know, chronic stress can set up its own type of circuits. And there is brain circuits that happen in feedback. And those need to be addressed. And absolutely can. Post-pandemic, let's not even talk about during the plague. But post-plague, I had many patients who never had any anxiety or depression who've come out and said, I don't think I'm doing well. And I'd like to have a conversation about that. The problem is, is that we don't have many resources uh, in the medical care system. So, you know, I oftentimes focus on DIY supports, making sure eating well, you're getting outdoor activity, et cetera. 
but also seeking information that's credible about your condition and accessing resources that are credible. Um, I always say that nothing is, you know, there's one thing that's worse than no therapy and that's bad therapy. Uh, and, you know, it's a plenty with the misinformation out there. And this is such a complex and multifaceted issue. So how can Canadians educate themselves and stay informed about mental health conditions and all of the available treatments out there? So number one, you know, if you have a primary care provider, access them right away. Have a discussion about how you're feeling. We have scales. You know, there are some supports. You can be put on a wait list. I certainly offer patients a lot of resources, um, meditation, breathing exercises, etc. Look at your lifestyle. I always say the basics, look at your diet, look at, you know, your exercise, look at your sleep cycle. Um, but in terms of resources, be very careful because this is a field that, um, you know, that people are very vulnerable and a lot of people realize that and will take advantage of that vulnerability. So a lot of the lotions and potions out there, I always say I don't have any desire to peddle snake oil. Um, so credible sites, um, mental health organizations and uh, we talk quite a bit here about caretoknow.ca. And the reason I like this site is, number one, it's updated. The information is ever-expanding. And it is medically supported in the sense that we have medical experts like myself that are providing input to what's available and what's not available and updating regularly. You know, the uh, medicine is evolving every day and information should evolve accordingly. And you need to know where to go. The internet is here to stay, but browsing safely is so important for so many reasons. Right, misinformation um, can be devastating, and you know a wrong turn can lead patients down rabbit holes, especially with mental health. When people are just wanting help, and that pure desire, like I said, makes them vulnerable to nonsense available. The CareToKnow.ca. All right, and this is such a deep issue uh, that you have expanded on this in a longer blog post on what she said talk .com. So I encourage people to take a few minutes for themselves, go read it, if not for you, for somebody in your circle. This is really important. And uh, let's take care of each other because this is a stressful time for everybody. So thank you so much for joining me, Christine. Thank you so much. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. thrilled to introduce you to my next guest, Mary Sanders, an Olympic gymnast turned Cirque du Soleil acrobat who has now ventured into the world of entertainment. Mary's journey is one of relentless determination, personal sacrifice, and the power of reinvention. In her memoir, she shares her incredible story from competing in the 2004 Olympic Games to working with Shark Tank's Robert Herjavec. Let's dive into her inspiring journey and learn how she navigated the challenges and triumphs of her diverse career. Mary, welcome to What She Said. Thank you so much, Candice. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us about the early days of your gymnastics career and how your father's Olympic dream influenced your path? Absolutely. 
I was literally born into the sport of gymnastics. My father was a Big Ten champion, very well known uh, as a gymnast, trampolinist uh, later in life. And he called me his little Olympian from the time I was born. So I had uh, uh, some big goals on my shoulder from the time I was born. So he was my coach up until I was about eight years old and he passed away from cancer. And obviously that was a big challenge in my life, a big change. He was my mentor, my father, my idol, everything all in one. And to have that being taken away around eight years old was, uh, you know, life-changing. But from then, um, I continued in the sport. My mom persevered, three kids under three, and um, she just really helped me get to my dreams. And eventually, I switched to rhythmic gymnastics, which is with the ribbon and the balls and the hoops. Um, It just catered more to my body type. And was able to make my father's dream for me come true and become his little Olympian. And transitioning from an Olympic gymnast to a Cirque du Soleil acrobat is a pretty significant shift. Uh, <laughs> so what, what inspired this change? And how did your experiences as an Olympian prepare you for this world of Cirque du Soleil? Mm-hmm. After the Olympics, I was supposed to just go to school, become normal, as I call it, and uh, just hang out with friends and and do what I always wanted to do my whole life because I was never able to just hang with friends and be normal. But, you know, God had other plans and I ran away to the circus instead. And actually, I think it was an amazing transition for me. I was lucky enough to have that buffer and that time to sort of get into the real world, make some money um, right out of sport. I think a lot of athletes struggle with that. You know, you compete at the Olympics at your highest level and then you're, you're just done. And you're like, now what do I do with my life? But Cirque du Soleil provided me a really great buffer into the real world. I was still able to use my body, my physicality, 10 shows every week and perform on stage. You still get that adrenaline um, and you're still doing what you love. So it was a very crazy transition. However, I love the performing side of gymnastics. I never really liked competing that much. So to be able to perform for a living was an amazing profession for the almost 10 years I did it after gymnastics. And it was grueling. I'm not going to lie. 10 shows a week. I got very injured. I was doing trampoline, aerial contortion. So my body was just taking a major beating after it was already pretty destroyed for my Olympic career. So that was difficult. And um, eventually I did leave Cirque du Soleil. I just knew I didn't want to be 80 and a clown. So I, I kind of, uh, jumped into the corporate world, which was the harder transition for me, actually. So you seem to be the queen of transitions, to be honest, because you've you've gone from gymnast to Cirque du Soleil, and now you are in entertainment, Mm -hmm. and you are balancing your career with your family. So tell me a little bit about that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I, I think in writing my book, I've discovered that I do reinvent my life a lot. Uh, I transition a lot. I reinvent my life a lot. And I think it's just because I want to be stable. I want to be financially stable. I want to be able to provide for my family. And it, it was it was a real learning curve. I was, you know, blessed and served. I had a great income. And then getting off the road and just starting out from zero again. I studied public relations at Cirque, but I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grow up and become normal. So I really dabbled in all different careers. I was very, very hard, struggling, and and um, but thankfully, just luckily, I um, I was working in recruitment at the time, and I saw this assistant job, and I applied for it, and that's how I met Robert. 
And there was a couple other Olympians at his company at the time. And the joke was that he only hired Olympians. <laughs> so he took a chance on me, um, Robert Hertzbeck, and I've been with him almost 10 years now. And I've learned a lot. I feel like I've gotten a business degree in working for him. And then in the last couple of years, I got married, had kids, and now still juggling, um, you know, the crazy full-time job and being a wife and a mother. And it's, it's obviously my most rewarding job being a mother, but it just adds to like the constant reinvention and, and having to really transform my life. And I, I just, I think life is full of opportunities and I don't want to stop at just one accomplishment or one goal. I think there's just so much to do in life and we just have one life to live. And I think I owe that a lot to Robert, that mentality, because if you meet him, he's like a little kid and he's constantly doing everything. And, and I want my kids to always, you know, reach for the stars and accomplish anything. Like no dream is too big, as cheesy as that sounds. Well, I'm positive that your book has lots of inspiring, uh, you know, tales and stories for people to to pull on for themselves. Uh, but we have about 30 seconds left. Do you have any, you know, advice you would give somebody sort of to motivate them to take that next step into a new role? Absolutely. I, I reached a point in my life where I became very stagnant. I wasn't excited to get out of bed every day, call it depression, call it anxiety. I'm not sure. And in writing my book, I really found that passion, my creativity again. And I just encourage anyone who's not excited to wake up every day is to just dive into that area that you've always wanted to do that one time in your life. And I promise you, you'll wake up a lot more excited the next day. Great advice. Uh, where can people uh, get your book and where can they follow you online? Because I feel like you're probably sharing information all the time there as well. Absolutely. My book's available anywhere where books are sold online, on Amazon, your local bookstore. Um, my audiobook just came out as well. So that came out in, in November. So I'm quite excited about that. I actually narrated it. And um, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Okay, wonderful. Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for your time. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.